You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. morning again we're going to return to our study through first timothy house rules for god's church last sunday we saw rule number one very important foundationally in the church no false doctrine christ is the lord of the church he is the head of his body the church and he mediates that lordship through his word by the power of his spirit that's how he brings people into the church through the gospel That is also how he builds the church up and matures it through his word. And uh, as we saw last time, false teachers displace the word of God with their own fleshly teachings. The apostle Paul was warning Timothy and charging him that he had to confront false teachers in his work at Ephesus. And um, that is uh, where we left off last time. False teachers had come into that church just as Paul had prophesied, really, back in five years before with the Ephesian elders. We saw that in Acts chapter 20, that's recorded, that uh, they're going to come in from the outside and persecute the church, but they're also from among your own selves, he said, there will become, there will come in false teachers. So we saw that principle that the church is persecuted from the outside, but it is perverted from the inside. So um, we saw last time, too, that these men, these false teachers, He said they are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we noted that that's a bad combination. Not knowing what you're talking about at the same time making confident assertions. And and not knowing you don't know. Yeah, that's kind of the first step, right, to knowing that. But this is how Paul describes them, and uh, they were a danger to the church, and that was one thing Timothy was going to have to confront as he uh, stayed in Ephesus, as Paul went on to northern Greece or Macedonia, as he said. And so he charged him with what he was ha- had to do, and he uh, delegated his apostolic authority to him, and... Um, the way these people in these churches were using the law was not proper. It was not lawful, as we're going to see. And uh, so this morning, we're going to see house rule number two, use the law properly, or as Paul says, legally. So uh, before we open our study this morning, let's commit our time to our Lord and ask his blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your great grace in our life. We know that... Um, It is because of that grace that we are even able to gather here today. We know that uh, you gave us that grace in Jesus Christ, and it's through him that we can know you. And so we just praise you for that, and we know that it is by your same grace that you have brought us here together this morning. Pray that you would be our teacher, that uh, by your spirit you would minister your word to every heart here, that you would accomplish every purpose that you have, and then we will praise you in his name. Amen. Well, verses 8 through 11 is our passage for this morning uh, as we look at the proper use of the law. And it's only natural that after describing these false teachers who were using the law improperly, that Paul would just take a little time and discuss something about the proper use of the law. 
He says in verse 8 through 11, and I'm just going to read through all these verses. It's a one sentence in the original Greek, and it's also in many of the translations a single sentence. So I'm just going to read right through it for our for our reference. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, the first thing we're going to see, and it's there in your outline, the law is good. The law is good if it is used lawfully. The Apostle Paul really is probably anticipating people that say, well, you're going to criticize the law, Paul? What do you think? Do you think the law is not something good? And so he has to very carefully deflect that criticism and say, no, the law is good. And and it's it's good if you use it lawfully, and it's also good intrinsically and inherently. He has to acknowledge that the law is good. He needs Timothy to know and his readers to know, because remember, this letter is going to be read to the churches, that he did not have a low view of God's law. He's going to lift it up to its proper place, but he's also needing to show its proper usage within the church. Paul's condemnation was not for the law itself, but for those who wanted to elevate themselves to be teachers of the law while at the same time using it for the wrong purpose. It all depends on how a person uses the law, Paul says. That little sentence uh, in many translations in English begins with the word now, which is certainly within the range of meaning of that word, but it also can be translated but. And the word but has a, a little stronger contrasty force to it, and I think that's what he's doing. In contrast to these false teachers... We need to understand the proper use of the law. And he says, we know. So certainly Timothy would have been his his protege, his student. He had been with him on other ministry uh, situations, and he would have been well acquainted with Paul's understanding of the law. And um, remember that Ephesus is Gentile country. Ephesus is Gentile country, and, and probably the bulk of the people there did not have that Old Testament background and grounding that you would have in a people of of a Jewish background, Jewish converts to Christianity. So they would have been very vulnerable to to a misunderstanding or a misteaching or being misled as to the purpose of the law. And so his point here is that he's going to straighten that out. And the first thing he says is, even though I'm going to criticize the bad use of the law, the law intrinsically is good. He uses a word here that could also be translated useful, useful. It's a word that means good excellent in its nature and characteristics, and therefore it is well adapted to its ends, to what its purpose is. In other words, it's not just beautiful from the outside. It is functionally good, functionally beautiful as well. The law is inherently good because God had given it. It's a reflection of his holy character and nature. The law is revelation from God, and it's also revelation of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at his law. That's his standard. That's his holy standard. If you want to know what a a uh, 
government is like. If you want to know what a nation is like morally, look at the laws, right? And certainly you have noticed, even in our own nation, laws that flex and change and, and year by year, decade by decade change, um, may not, may or may not reflect God's standards. I mean, they used to make laws that protected you from perversion. And then they began to make laws that protected the perversion. And then they began to make laws that just didn't protect the perversion. They made laws that promoted the perversion. And now they're making laws that don't just protect and promote the perversion. They're making laws that impose the perversion. But that's human law. God's law, God's word, does not flex or change because he doesn't flex or change. It's a revelation of his character. It's uh, very well represented in uh, the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 19. <clears throat> in Psalm 19, you're going to hear how the psalmist um, looks at the, the law of God, and he uses all these different terms, law, testimony, precepts, and so on. But it's not it's what it looks like from the outside, but also what it does. And both those things are in view here. It's, he says, and this is just Psalm 19, 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. So the goodness of the law is both in what it is intrinsically, inherently. It's beautiful, it's good, and so on, it's holy. But it also functionally is good as well. Paul understood the inherent goodness of the law. In Romans 12, uh, 7, 12, and we're going to be looking at Romans here in just a minute. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. These false teachers are trying to use the law as a means of salvation through their own works. And, and this issue of the law is a massive topic in the Bible, as you know. I mean, it all the way through Scripture, um, the issue of the law, the gospel, and even into the New Testament, uh, it, it, it and, and what's, what you have to remember is when you go from the New Testament back to Psalms, you're, you're, uh, you're transitioning somewhere around a thousand years, okay? We can flip around in our Bibles, uh, real quickly, but you gotta remember that there's about a thousand years between David's view of the law in Psalm 19 and what these people had done in the first century. They had built this massive structure, this, this religious system with to supposedly hedge the law, protect the law. And Jesus comes along and says, you've, you've, uh, you've brought in the traditions of men and you're not teaching God's law. They had built this system to supposedly protect the law. Really what they were doing, they were making it easier for them to say that we obey the law and are therefore justified. And uh, then they would impose that on people, this giant burden. And the Lord just rebuked them. Um, you're imposing that on people, and you're not even able to keep it yourselves. 
So this issue of the law is a big issue in Scripture, and it's, big, it's been a big issue in church history as well, all the way through. Um, is the church under the law? Those kinds of questions. Now, you, we could t- take several weeks and maybe do a uh, fully orbed, systematic theological study of the law and its relationship to grace or the relationship to the gospel, but uh, we're not going to do that because you didn't bring your lunch and Jim has to preach later on, that would be a massive study. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to be a little more contained and just look at uh, kind of a brief survey of the purpose of the law. Why did God give the law? And uh, so that way we can sort of stay in the context of 1 Timothy and how Paul is using it in this study in 1 Timothy. So first thing he says, the law is good if it is used lawfully. Now, that's kind of Paul's way. He's not questioning as to whether or not it is good. That conditional sentence um, is, a, is a type of condition that actually says it can go either way. depends on how you use it. It's inherently good, but it must be used lawfully. The second thing he says is the law was not given for the just or righteous. He says there, understanding this in verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, okay? What does he mean by that, not laid down for the just, well, or the righteous? Now, there may be a little bit of sarcasm here because we also know that there's no such thing as a righteous man, right? Everybody is unjust by nature. Those that think they are just cannot be saved until they acknowledge the fact that they are not righteous before God. Jesus himself told the Pharisees and the scribes in Luke 5.31, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to sinners. And so there is some a little bit of maybe sarcasm there in this type of approach. But basically, this is what Paul is saying. It's not given for the just. The law was given, and we're going to see from the second part of 9 through 10, the law was given to restrain sin, to restrain sin. Who are the unjust? Well, Paul, in these uh, in 9b through 10, he really is echoing the Ten Commandments there. This would have been a, a, a real obvious reference to the, uh, the Ten Commandments and both of the tables of the law, the first table, Commandments dealing with the relationship to God and the second table with people. And so he says here, and notice what he says. He uses this terminology, these adjectives. Each one of them is a descriptive term, and then it tells you something about what it results in. Okay, He says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Again, echoing the Ten Commandments. For the lawless and disobedient, now the people who are lawless means they have no law, they don't care about the law, they have no standards, um, and that produces disobedience or rebellion against God. And then he says it's for the ungodly and sinners. These are people that have no regard for anything sacred, no regard for anything holy. Everything is profane or natural or earthy. Of course, that results in sin or them being sinners. They have no regard for anything holy because they have no regard for God. And then he says, for the unholy and profane, very much the same thing. They're indifferent to anything that is right. There's no such thing as right or wrong, or they take it upon themselves to determine what is right or wrong. And that 
produces profane behavior. They basically stomp on and destroy that anything that is from God. These things relate to their relationship to God, as the first table of the law does. Now, in the second set of sins, it corresponds with the second table of the law, those dealing with our relationships to other people. He says, um, for those who strike their fathers and mothers... <clears throat> Fifth commandment, honor your fathers and mothers. That certainly is a violation of that. He then says, um, um, for murderers, sixth commandment, do no murder. The sexually immoral, he says, this is a violation of the seventh commandment, the prohibition against adultery or sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul actually uses the Greek noun pornos. Guess which word we get from that? absolutely transliterated right into our language. Any type of sexual sin, men play all kinds of word games and they can call it whatever they want. They can describe it however they want. Paul, through the Spirit of God, calls it pornos. That's where we get that word. Sexual sexual activity outside of God's marriage. You know, in, in, in Genesis, God defined male, he defined female, and he, he created marriage and defines marriage. And he defined the intimate relationship between a man and a woman within marriage. And he confined that to marriage. That created freedom in many other areas of life. What do you see nowadays? The exact opposite. No rules for the, for, for sexual activity. We don't want to be confined in that area. We don't want to, we want to be able to define it however we want. People say there's no rules, no limitations on anything. And, they want to restrict and confine behavior in a, whole, in a whole lot of other areas, do they not? Absolutely have taken God's created order and turned it upside down. Well, he goes on and he says, men who practice homosexuality, this also would have been a violation, is a violation of the seventh commandment. Um, enslavers, people who enslave other people, steal other people in order to slave them. That's a violation of the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Violation of the ninth commandment, liars, perjurers, don't bear false witness against your neighbor or anybody else. Don't lie. And then in case somebody is listening and they're sort of ticking things off and they say, okay, that's not me. That's no, no, that's not me. That's not me. Paul just casts a really big net and he just encompasses everybody and wraps them up in this net when he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So if you think you escaped Paul's little list here, um, you didn't. None of us do. It's a, it's a very wide net he casts. So um, people have also noted, students have noticed uh, that the 10th commandment against coveting is not mentioned here or something that doesn't fit that category. Well, certainly whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine encompasses coveting. And if uh, you want to know something about Paul's view of coveting, go to the end of 1 Timothy, read chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Paul is exhorting people with wealth in the church in that area. So he definitely understands coveting. He understands that it's part of the picture, but he just wraps it all up in one big uh, uh, package by saying anything else contrary to sound doctrine. This word sound is used repeatedly by Paul in all three of these uh, pastoral letters. It's a word that's that from the Greek word is hugaino, okay? Now, I, I try to n- not um, get 
down too much into the, 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 the Greeky, squeaky, geeky kind of stuff here, but this is a word that you would recognize. We have it in our language, hygieno, and the word hygiene. We get that from this. Hygiene. Um, and you also have to be careful that you don't take a uh, contemporary meaning and sort of try to read it back into. You have to understand the word as it's being used. But it's very, very uh, easy to see this word is being used by Paul in the same way that we would use it. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of physical health. But here and elsewhere, it describes the word of God, that which is healthy, that which is not contaminated from something else, that which is purely the word of God. This was a huge issue, as you know, back in the Reformation. Um, Catholic Church would say, sure, salvation is by grace. Sure, salvation by faith. Sure, uh, Christ. Sure, the word of God in Scripture. Except the Reformers said, wait a minute, only, only faith only Scripture, Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and that created the dividing point. Um, it's easy to pile on all kinds of things uh, to what Scripture teaches and say, well, sure, we teach and preach the Word of God, but do you teach it uncontaminated? That's the key. And as you know, uh, Paul was a very gentle person, and even to the Galatian Christians, he, he talks about how gentle he was when he was with them, like a nursing mother. But you also know that Paul, when it came to defending the gospel, the purity of the gospel, he was about as gentle as a sledgehammer. And he did the same thing to the to the Galatian Christians. He really castigated them for allowing the gospel to be contaminated. So he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine... Every New Testament church, if it's worthy of the definition, must have sound doctrine or its people will not be spiritually sound or healthy. It's just axiomatic. It's fundamental. Well, the, 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 the law was given then to restrain sin, all these sins. It was also given to reveal the holiness of God. And again, we're not going to be doing a fully orbed uh, systematic theology of the law, but just enough to, for us to see how Paul is referring to this here and what he means by this. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, God says to the Israelites, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord. It's actually the word Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God. Keep my statutes and do them, I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. So you can see the sanctifying or uh, restraining uh, purpose of the law. It reveals the holiness of God. He wants his people to be holy. And then it's also given to generate an awareness of our sins. And we're going to just uh, survey just a little bit of what Paul taught in Romans. Romans, of course, is Paul's great theological treatise, on justification by faith alone, and so that would be the go-to place. But we want to just sort of just do a brief survey here to generate an awareness of our sin. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, very important concept there. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. God gave his law to generate an awareness of our sin and also to produce a sense of guilt. The whole world wants to have emotional 
freedom, wants to feel emotionally good. In the church, God wants to produce guilt, okay? He, he wants to infect us with the bad news of our guilt before the good news of his grace is going to have any meaning at all. And so that's one of the purposes of the law. Gener- generate an awareness of our sin, produce a sense of guilt. It's also given to stir up more sin within us. This is Romans chapter 5. And I encourage you to go back through these passages and look at all these verses in their context. Be a Berean, and uh, you will see what Paul is uh, arguing here, to stir up more sin within us. In chapter 5, Paul says in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law came in to increase trespass. That seems a little bit counterintuitive. Wait a minute, you mean God gave the law to stir up more sin within us? Yes, exactly right. That's what he did, and that's what it's supposed to have, but for a really good purpose. And uh, interesting there in that verse, the law came in. Paul uses a word there that means to come in alongside, to come in alongside. Alongside of what? The Abrahamic covenant had already been given. The Abrahamic covenant is the great covenant in Scripture that that was given to Abraham, and it was given four centuries plus before the law was given. So the law came in to accommodate uh, the Abrahamic covenant in the sense that the Abrahamic covenant didn't deal with men's sins. It's the promises of God through the Messiah who would come through the seed of David. But the law had to come in to accomplish these things and to convict people of their sin, to stir up guilt, and to stir up more sin within us. So that's what he means by came in, came alongside to increase the trespass. Well, it also came in to show us the source of sin, produce guilt, with, uh, stir up more sin within us, to show us that the source of sin is within us. Again, this is Romans chapter 7. If you look at, um, oh, let's start with verse 7. What shall we then say, Paul says, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. See, Paul's very well aware of covetousness in Scripture. Here it is right here. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So not only does it produce a sense of our guilt, does it stir up more sin within us, it shows us that the source of sin is within us, and gee, that sin produces our death. The wages of sin is death. And H, and to show us the sinfulness of sin. Paul here is, and uh, you should work through this yourself, um, it, it's an amazing thing. It's almost, again, it's counterintuitive. Wait a minute, the law stirs up more sin? Yes, it does. That's why it's it's so uh, absurd that somebody could think they could be saved by the law. All that does is stir up more sin in you and show you that you cannot be saved by keeping the law. 
he says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. The responsibility always, it's not the law that can't save, that's inadequate in some way. It's the sin that lies within each one of us. So the law was given to restrain sin, to reveal the holiness of God, to generate an awareness of our sin, to produce a sense of our guilt, to stir up more sin within us, to show us that the source of sin is within us and that sin kills us and to show us the sinfulness of sin. And another thing Paul says in Galatians 3 to be our temporary guardian, to be our temporary guardian. This is a, a very important concept. It shows you not only what the law, one thing the law was intended to do, but also the temporary nature of it. In uh, Galatians chapter 3, starting in uh, verse 19, Paul says, Why then the law? Why'd the, why'd the law come? It was added because of transgressions. Again, it was added to complement uh, the Abrahamic covenant, but it was added temporarily. Okay. It, uh, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Speaking of Sinai and the days after that when the law came to the people. When you see that word until in scripture, that tells you there's an end point to something. It came in until. Very important uh, little uh, exegetical uh, clue there in the t- in the context. Speaking of the law, he, and it says, "Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, the promises of the covenant? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law." It's part of his whole argument. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This word guardian here, the purpose of the law, is... um, uh, a word that's uh, very interesting. And Paul here, he's relying on the, the people reading this to understand the cultural background of this world word. Um, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Romans, who admired the Greek culture very much, often had Roman uh, or Greek slaves in their household. And they would uh, appoint one of their Greek slaves to be a guardian over some of their young boys. Um a dictionary of Greek and Roman antiquities describes it like this. The word, the Greek word is um, pedagogos, okay? And it says uh, the office of tutor, they call it. And he really wasn't quite a teacher, but more of a guardian. It says this man, this slave in the family was assigned to, one, or the, the children were assigned to one of the most trustworthy of the slaves. This is the, the pedagogos slave. The sons of the master were committed to his care on attaining their sixth or seventh year. Their previous education would have been conducted by females. They remained with the tutor until they attained the age of puberty. His duty was rather to guard them from evil, both physical and moral. He went with them to and from the school or the gymnasium. He accompanied them out of doors on all occasions. He was responsible for their personal safety and for their avoidance of bad company. They had teachers who taught them various skills in music, mathematics, and so on, 
But this guardian was more somebody who was to keep care of them and to guard them, keep them away from evil and to protect them. He even carried their books, their instruments, whatever they needed to uh, study with the other teachers who taught them. Paul says the law was like this, and it was it was there to keep us under guardianship temporarily until we came to faith, to lead us to faith in Christ. That's J. To be a temporary guardian and to lead us to faith in Christ. So before a person trusts Christ through faith, they are under the law. The passage says imprisoned, held captive. So the Christian, Paul elsewhere, and and again in Romans chapter 6, he tells us you are not under law but under grace. And the reason he gives that is developed in chapter 7, again in Romans. You have died to the law. He sort of circles back up to what he said in chapter 6. If you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. You're united in his death through spirit baptism. You've died to the law, therefore you're not under the law. Somebody that's dead is out from under law. And he uses that illustration of marriage to, to show that. So the law has those purposes. Um, it has a restraining use, it has a condemning use, and it has a sanctifying use. We are not sanctified by keeping the law, but the sanctifying purpose of the law in the big picture is to move us to faith in Jesus Christ because he'll do what the law cannot do, and that is save us from our sins. Number four in your outline there, Roman numeral four, the law can't do what the gospel can do. All of that law-breaking, all of the sin described here, all of the sin, it's like a deadly disease that infects the body, and it metastasizes, it spreads throughout every organ, every cell, every non-physical aspect of our person, our heart, our mind, all of our thought processes are infected by sin and eaten up and killed. Sin is a deadly disease. And uh, I always get a kick out of people that think they have free will. Their will, is your will somehow separated from your heart? Remember what Jeremiah said about the heart of man? Desperately wicked and deceitful. Our immaterial being is absolutely contaminated with sin. If it's your heart, your mind, your thought processes, all of it. You can't disconnect the will of man. What does it do? Orbit around you like some kind of a planet, an orb, disconnected and, and absolutely pure from the rest of your pro- immaterial being? No. The will is just as contaminated by sin as every other aspect of our being. That's just the way it is. That's what Scripture teaches. And the law can't save you from that. Only Christ. Paul goes on in 10b, and he says, Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel is sound or healthy doctrine. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Okay. Second Timothy 3.16, he just encompasses all of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So in those categories, of course, the law is part of God's word. It has a profit to it, but you can't use it for what it wasn't designed to use, to, to be used for. It cannot save. But what the gospel does do, it, the gospel glorifies God in verse 11. He calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It not only glorifies God, it is from God, 
And the gospel also is our sacred trust. He ends that passage by saying, the glory of the blessed God, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul understood the word of God and the gospel is a sacred trust. He understood it. He wants to pass that on to Timothy. And of course, it needs to be passed on to us as well. Uh, the church is one generation, they say, away from extinction. We have the baton. We have the gospel. And um, we need to pass it on to others. So the law is good if it is used lawfully. The law was not given for the just, but for the unjust to restrain sin, to reveal the holiness of God, to generate an awareness of our sin, to produce a sense of our guilt, to stir up more sin within us, drive us to the cross, to show us that the source of sin is within us and that sin kills, to show the sinfulness of sin, to be our temporary guardian, to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. The law cannot save. It cannot. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can. Now, um, if we could hold questions maybe for next time, I wanted to uh, present uh, an illustration of, of the proper use of uh, the law. Now, Peter Hammond has agreed to come and, uh, and do that, and because he's uh, teaching a, uh, a class in evangelism, uh, Way of the Master, and um, he's going to talk about the proper use of the law, how it's done, and he wants me to be the unregenerate guinea pig. So, I'll... Thanks, Jeff. So, we're going to have a conversation as if uh, we just met in some sort of uh, environment, perhaps uh, out in the, uh, the real world out there. And I would want to start the conversation with something. Be a good overnote. Nice to meet you. My name is Peter. Hi, Peter. Good to meet you. Um, My name is Jeff. Jeff. Nice to meet you, Jeff. So, wow. Snow on the ground already. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so, um, Jeff, I'm curious, um, you know, we've got a few minutes to hang out here. Um, I'm curious, uh, what do you think happens when we die, Jeff? Well, I mean, I, you know, hadn't thought that much about it. I mean, it's just probably, uh, you know, maybe, maybe nothing. Maybe nothing, we just okay. slide into oblivion or I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, it depends on how hard, you know, a person tries or. Oh, so kind of like b- about doing good. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, you know, so would it be okay uh, to ask you, do, do you sure, consider yourself yeah. to be a good person? I'm as good as, you know, most. Okay. Probably, I guess. Well, you know, I don't. Well, I'm curious. In, in your lifetime, how many lies do you think you've told, Jeff? Before the age of seven? Uh, probably a lot, yeah. Probably okay. have, oh, yeah, I've told okay. lies. Sure. So, so what would you call somebody that's told lies? What would I call them? Mm-hmm. I'd call them a liar. Okay. All right, so in your lifetime, have you ever stolen anything, even if it was small? Now, remember, you did just tell me you were a liar, so if you could be truthful about this, I'd appreciate it. Well, I mean, like something like a paper clip out of the office, something like that? Regardless of its size, have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, yeah, sure, I've stolen Okay, so so what do you call somebody who steals things? I would call them a thief. Okay. Stole from me. Yeah. That's worse than if they stole from somebody else. They stole from me, they're a thief. So so what would that make you, then? Well, I... Well, I guess that would kind of put me in the category of being a thief. No, it wouldn't. It would make you a lying thief. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Have yeah. you ever used God's name as a cuss word? Ever used his name in vain? Yeah. Okay, it's called yeah. blasphemy. Very serious. Yeah, but I had a right to. I mean, it was really bad what happened. Well, that well, person well it's very serious. In the Old Testament, you know, they actually used to stone people to death for that. I'm glad they don't do that anymore because I would have been stoned to death yeah. many times yeah. over. And Jeff, I appreciate your honesty right now. I've got one well, more question to you. This is something that really convicted I'm an, me. I guess I'm an honest liar because you just. Jesus, Jesus said that um, if you you know it said of old if you um, commit adultery or if you um, commit adultery that even if you look at another person you've committed adultery in your heart lusted after somebody have you ever lusted after somebody else yeah but she you know I mean she's walking around with that dress like okay. that I mean what do you expect okay we don't oh, need man. examples we don't need examples you know the thing all right so I just want to do a oh. summary right now this okay. is this is not me judging you Jeff okay this is I, I, I this know. is you admitting you're a man you're a man you're... this is you admitting okay that that you're a yeah, lying yeah. thieving blasphemous adulterate heart and let's say today was the day that you died and you stood before God and he opened up the books in your whole life everything you've ever said everything you've ever done, everything you've ever even thought, and he judged you by his good and perfect law, would he find you innocent or guilty of breaking his law? I'd be guilty. You would be guilty. And so then as a good and righteous judge, should he send you to heaven or should he send you to hell for breaking his law? He should send me to hell. Okay, so I Jeff, here's my question. Does that, does that concern you? Yes, it does. And, and rightly it should, rightly it should. Now, do you know what this judgeful, this wrathful God, who is also loving and merciful, did for guilty sinners like you and I, so that we could be saved from the wrath to come? Didn't he give us the law so we know how to live? And no, we've already, we've already found out that right. you've broken the law, right? Haven't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't do me any good, would it? So here's what he did. 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born here on earth. He was born miraculously of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. The laws that we've broken again and again and again, he did perfectly. And then he went to something called the cross, where as he was on that cross, God the Father showed up, and he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ for your lies, for your thieving, for your blasphemy, for my lies, for my thieving, for blasphemy, for every sin I've ever done and every sin I ever will do. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross, and right before he died, he said three very important words. Do you know what they were? It is finished. The debt has been paid. And then he died. He was buried in a tomb. And then something miraculous happened three days later. Do you know what it was? Was that the resurrection? Yes, he came back from the dead. Proving, that really proving yes, it proved that he was who he said he was, God himself, and that he could do what he said he did when he said it is finished. The debt has been paid. Only God could do that. And he was seen by his disciples. He was seen by 500 people over the course of 40 days. And right now, and he ascended into heaven, and right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he wants you to know this good news. He's making you a free offer. He says, if you will repent, that's to have a change of mind. Mm -hmm. It's to turn. You're going towards your sin. You turn away from it. You go to the Lord, and you repent, and you put your faith and trust in him. He makes you a promise. He says, you will be saved from the wrath to come. And that's a promise by the living God. God cannot break his promises. That's good news. It is good news. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm happy to. Do you have any questions? No, I'm going to definitely think about that, though. All right, Jeff. Thank you, Peter. You have yourself a blessed day. You too. I'll be praying for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Proper use of the law.
We have a few minutes. Are there any questions? Again, this is a it's a huge topic, and in, in, uh, even even to this day, people are struggling over the law, the law. And 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 as Peter said, it it it's an odd thing. You've probably experienced this with people. I have a lot of times. You know, you, you maybe talk about spiritual things, and they go, "Well, I, I keep the law." It's what is it? The nat, the nation, natural default religion of man or something wants to self justify, and that is a proper use of the law. Yes. Wrong presupposition. We don't have to prove anything. You believe in a stop sign? No. Does that change it? No. I mean, you could go down a list with that person, and uh, rejection changes nothing in any area of life, right? That's that's how I would approach it. Does that make sense, Peter? I mean, people. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, I don't believe in cancer. Therefore, I'll never get it. I don't believe in having a car. I, I mean, you can take thousands of things in everyday life that are realities, and rejecting them changes nothing. Um, that's how I would approach it with that person. You can do that, yes. True science is always consistent with Scripture. Um, it's like you're saying, well, we don't, I don't, that's circular reasoning, right? And there's nothing wrong with circular reasoning if the circle starts with God's Word. So, not my problem. Not my problem. Their problem is not with me or my logic. Their problem is with God and His Word. And you have to just dump it right back in their lap. Ultimately, they're going to stand before God, whether they believe in Him or not. Read read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following. The great white throne judgment. Those people are standing there, and they're not saying a word. But they're standing there. Heaven and earth has passed away. It's gone. They're standing there with a resurrected body and an eternal lake of fire out in front of them. They're not allowed to say a word. They just go from there with their resurrected body into a lake of fire. The ocean, the earth, gives up its dead, and they can resist God all they want, but ultimately they're going to stand before God someday. So that's kind of how I would approach that. Um, I'm not obligated to convince that person. I'm not. The Holy Spirit does that. Our, our obligation is to preach the Word, share the Word, proclaim the Gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Sure. Oh, I would agree. Everybody has presuppositions, and I think the 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 argument between what's called presuppositional apologetics and and evidential apologetics um, sometimes that's a bit of a a bit of a non-issue. The simple issue is: what are we commanded to do by God? Preach the word, teach the word, proclaim the gospel. And therein lies the power of God unto salvation. Now, sure, we're going to encounter all kinds of people. I've had conversations with everybody from a, I mean, I used, I worked in the world in construction and, um, you know, a lot of those guys, they're not interested in hearing anything logical or spiritual and they'll tell you exactly what they think. So you have to maybe approach them a different way. I've also engaged graduate philosophy students who, I mean, they know all the philosophy and all of the arguments and all the rest. To me, it's irrelevant. You, you know, we are to share the gospel with them. And, and yes, there is such a thing as circular reasoning. And in logic, um, that is a logical fallacy, or it can be. But when it starts with the Word of God, it's, uh, it's definitely where we start. At least that's where I would start. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. I mean, he could go toe-to-toe with any any uh, Jewish Old Testament scholar in his day. What did he do in Athens? He didn't appeal to the Old Testament. He appealed to what? 
creation. Read Acts 17. What's that? I mean, if you want to deny the created order that there is such thing as creation, you, sometimes you get to a point where you, you know, you're, you're done talking. And um, again, what is our obligation before the Lord to share the gospel, to do what we can? Of course, it depends on who we're talking to. If we're talking to a five or six year old, or we're talking to an adult, or we're talking to, we need to try to approach them in 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 the way of the Master. That person is is saying to you. I keep the law. And then the response is, okay, as he walked you through, do you really? And he, it proves them to n- not be a keeper of the law. And it's just a way to kind of get, get down to where that person is and to point it out to them, you know. And it really is using their own argument to show them that they're not. So it, it's also important to remember that when we share the gospel in however, whatever form it takes, we hopefully will be, it'll be scriptural. We have a powerful ally in the Spirit of God. You're not by yourself. Apart from the Spirit of God, remember, remember, theologians call it the concomitant working of word and spirit, always together, always together, always the word and the spirit. Without the Spirit's ministry to bring conviction, just like we saw, and to convince that person, there's not going to be salvation. You could, you could get the best presentation um, on the planet, and two people sitting right next to each other, one of them is saved, and the other one says, right over their head, I'm out of here, that's nonsense. It, it, it's the Spirit of the Lord that brings that conviction, that illumines the truth to that person. So we have a powerful ally. And um, so I hope, I hope uh, again, this, this is a massive topic, um, and uh, we could spend more time. And uh, it's it. If there are there any other questions, maybe we can talk about it more a little bit next time. There'll be some more time probably next time. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think. Uh, and 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 as Paul fully believed and taught, it we can't allow anything to be added to the gospel. Um, he was really a stickler about the purity of the gospel, faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and so on. Um, before we before we dismiss, I, I wanted to remind us all: not applicable for today. If we're here and done before twenty after. There's a Sunday school class that meets out there, and they don't have real good soundproofing. And uh, so I was I was asked to remind us all if we could before 20 after if, if we're done if we could stay in here, and uh, before uh, we go out there. Most churches, it's the adults telling the kids to be quiet in the hallways, you know. But we do things a little different here, you know. But uh, anyway, appreciate your uh, paying attention to that. So, well, let's pray before we go. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.